Welcome to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from the legendary hills of Brown, where the plum purple haze, the one nature herself drapes over the hills and hollers, inspires local characters, artists, and nature lovers. It's as though the hills themselves conspire to create a beauty and culture in the heart of Indiana. Sit for a spell and hear the music. Tall tales. True stories. And current goings on. Brought to you by folks who still know how to sit by a fire in winter. And swim buck naked in summer. Welcome to episode 55 of the Brown County Hour. This is Vera Grubbs. And Dave Seastrom, along with the rest of the crew. October is a month of transition, and we'll be featuring some stories that take us to the other side. Our plans for a musical guest didn't work out, so we'll be sharing a couple of featured artists from this summer's Fingerstyle Guitar Contest in Nashville. We'll also hear from Tori Berkmeyer, about her Brown County Seed project. Vivian Wolf talks about the cemetery project, and Lynn Lensiger shares some information about the Brown County Art Gallery. In the first segment, we'll hear an interview with our new technical producer, Chuck Wills. Tori Berkmeyer shares some information on her Brown County Seed project, and Chuck returns with a ghost story. We conclude this segment with a tune from this summer's fingerstyle guitar contest performed by Jonathan Brown, Mr. Sandman. This evening we're talking to our engineer and co-producer of the Brown County Hour, Chuck Wills. Hi, Chuck. How are you doing? Great, Dave. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, you're here every night anyway, so <laughs> we're just turning the mics around this evening. So, Chuck, you're... You're now our engineer, and you've taken over the position from our former engineer, Jeff Foster. How, how did that come about? Well, uh, Jeff Foster, he and I are friends, and he'd been asking me if I'd be interested in uh, the engineer position. And I thought, you know, I would be. And really, my family has a legacy in broadcasting. And in many ways, this is just a, a continuation of that legacy. Uh, my grandfather, W.R. Wills, was on CBS World News as the East Asia correspondent during World War II. He shared a bill with Edward R. Murrow. He was on the air with Edward R. Murrow. Now, they, they did not share a desk together, but they did share airwaves. Well, right. Your grandfather was in Tokyo, and Mr. Murrow was in England. That's right. That's right. And uh, we've got a, a clip that will air... Uh, that that's just a segment of one of the broadcasts, and uh, they they introduce the correspondents from uh, Europe and East Asia as joining them via shortwave radio, and uh, it, it's really something to listen to the broadcast of the day and uh, the type of language that they use and and just how it sounds. Yeah, it, it's really indicative of that era. The world today. At this time, Columbia again calls in its correspondence in Europe and the Far East for the latest news. By worldwide shortwave radio, we shall bring you the most recent developments on the diplomatic, economic, and battlefronts, direct from Berlin, London, and Tokyo. Lightning-fast visits to the capitals of the belligerent nations.
for news of activity on land, sea, and in the air, as reported by Columbia's correspondents. William L. Shara reports from Berlin, where the news tonight is Adolf Hitler's address asking England to surrender or face the long, threatened attack. From London, Edward R. Morrow, chief of Columbia's European staff, will report the British feelings toward Hitler's suggestions to surrender. There is also news of further German air raids and counter-air raids. And in the Far East, W.R. Wills reports in the capital of Japan where a new pro-military administration has taken over the government. The new Kanoya cabinet met today, and there were unconfirmed reports that the cabinet wants closer affiliation with Germany and Italy. Now for the news from Japan, as reported by our correspondent, W.R. Wills. There will be a brief pause while contact with Tokyo is being made. All right, go ahead, Tokyo. This is Tokyo. Good morning, America. In dealing with the reasons for the sudden, though not unexpected, resignation of the Unai cabinet early this week, it is necessary to bear in mind that Japan has for some time been exerting all its effort toward liquidation of the hostilities in China. The domestic and foreign... Well, you played that for us, and uh, the sound quality is so interesting, and it really invokes that time period. It really invokes the, uh, the whole pressure of the war. I mean, uh, Hitler had... The, the, they had just requested England uh, to capitulate and, you know, surrender. As we know, they didn't. So, you know, you can imagine all of the, the pressure and the, the horror of everything that's going on. Exactly. And that broadcast, to me, it, it seems to be a, a real pivotal point in time because the regime in, in Japan had just changed and there was so much uncertainty, so much going on. And I just have to think about those correspondents in those far-off places and what the experience would be for them in those moments. Well, actually, your grandfather and your grandmother were arrested. They were. It's really quite a story. Um, they ran a newspaper in Tokyo. Uh, it started in 1938 called Japan Newsweek. And that was the only English-speaking newspaper in Japan at the time. And you, you can imagine the adventure of being um, uh, Caucasian people in Japan as the war was brewing, uh, reporting on the political situation of the day. And it, it was a pretty unpopular position for them to be in, but the, the quality of their reporting was outstanding. So uh, the night of Pearl Harbor, the police came knocking and arrested them and uh, took them to prison and they were convicted on espionage charges, uh, arrested as enemy civilians, and they were kept in a, a Japanese prison for nearly nine months as, as the war was brewing. So after the nine months, they ended up being part of a prisoner exchange, and they were able to come back, uh, and uh, actually they weren't married at that point. They, my grandmother was a British citizen, and they ended up in Canada and got married and then came to the U.S. where they moved to Missouri. And uh, over the next several decades, they owned and ran several small town newspapers and continued to be involved in radio and TV broadcasting. And my grandmother was an author, and she actually wrote a book about their experience called My Life with the Enemy. And it's all about not only their experience, but the, the whole political climate of the time. You certainly come by your radio chops, honestly, uh, family history and all. Um, and I can 
I can say from having the privilege of working with you, uh, you're a natural, Chuck. Uh, oh, thanks, Dave. Well, you know, we heard you pitching live on the radio last week for uh, the fun drive, and your presence here in the studio definitely pleasant, definitely positive, and everyone has made the full adjustment to your taking over the reins for Mr. Foster. It was seamless. It truly was, and, and credit goes to both gentlemen, I believe. I mean, well... Yeah, credit to Jeff, because he and I spent a lot of time together, and he spent a lot of time and energy showing me the reins and get everything set so that it would be a a seamless transition. Uh, But I've been around sound and music and production all my life, and it's been a lot of fun to be part of this and to get to put together the programs and see all of the the exciting things that you guys bring to the the table and bring to the program uh i I really enjoy doing it so thank you for having me oh well i'll tell you this is a real privilege for us uh so what do you do what is your day job when you're not slaving away for the brown county hour well i spend as much time as i can as a musician Uh, i play in in several different groups around the the area and then i'm a uh, software designer uh, the rest of the time. Do you have a website or a Facebook page where we can check that out? Yeah, my Facebook page, uh, you can just search for Chuck Wills. Uh, I think it's Facebook slash Charles Wills. And my website, go to charleswills.com. Okay. And that has all of my uh, musical adventures there. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for that great story. Great. Thanks, Dave. My pleasure. Hey, this is Tori Berkemeyer, and I'm here with Seed Brown County. I want to share with you guys an awesome event that we have coming up here October 15th at the Brown County Public Library. The event takes place from 11 to 5 p.m., and it's a seed swap. We host these seed swaps each spring and the fall, and this event is actually really special because we've brought on some wonderful local teachers that are going to be talking about bees, pollinators, foraging. We even have a uh, wild food workshop where there'll be some cooking happening. So we want to share this event with the community to let you know to please bring your seeds and stories that you may have to share with us. Myself, I'll be speaking on the seed library project that we have going here in Brown County, as well as a speaker named Joseph Simcox, who travels the world harvesting seeds and plants that are facing extinction. So we've got a lot of really fun and exciting things for the whole family, actually. We have a kids' table as well. Part of what we're doing at Seed Brown County is really just trying to educate our community on the importance of collectively saving and sharing seeds, especially today in the time of all the degenerative agriculture practices that we have going. So this seed swap on October 15th at 11 a.m., is part of our project that we're trying to do to actively work on developing what we call a local seed model. So we're inviting everyone in your family, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, and the focus for us here at the Seed Swap is seeds in Brown County. Please come out and have some fun with us. If you'd like some more information on the event, check out Facebook. We have lots of events listed there. Or go ahead and visit us on the website at seedbrowncounty.org. This is the Seed Ladies signing off. Seed ya there! In October, our thoughts turn to leaves crunching underfoot, carving pumpkins, and our favorite ghouls and goblins running door to door asking for candy. It's the season for sitting around a campfire with friends and telling ghost stories. And I'm here to tell you, the stories are true. I've had a variety of paranormal experiences throughout my life, 
And I can say with all certainty that there are more to ghost stories than campfire fright. I'm Chuck Wills, and this is my real ghost story. I lived in a haunted house for three years, and in fact, it may have been a haunted neighborhood, given the stories that my neighbors told me. It all started innocently enough, creaking footsteps on the wooden floors at night, doors opening and closing on their own. But over time, it became more intense. Things would go missing, lights would flicker. Sometimes you would swear that you heard someone in the house singing along with the radio when you were certain there was no one else at home. Then you would hear those same voices in your dreams, and when you were able to finally force yourself awake, you would be spun around with your head at the foot of the bed. For months, my roommates and I endured this in silence, each of us thinking that we were crazy, or at least the other people in the house would think we were crazy if we ever told them. The creepy feeling of someone standing behind us, staring at us. That had to be our imagination, right? Well, that all changed the day the voices told us to get out. One roommate heard it through his stereo headphones. Another new roommate heard it when he walked through the front door for the first time with his arms loaded with his belongings and intent to stay. At that point, the activity in the house became more intense to the point that it was difficult to even sleep through the night. A few brave friends would try to visit for the weekend, but each one of them ended up leaving early. They just couldn't take it. The feeling of inky blackness that would seep in from the night. A blackness that you swore you could actually touch. Or maybe it could touch you. At the same time, our neighbors were hearing footsteps and seeing bolts of electricity jump across their living room. Even pots and pans banging in the kitchen in the middle of the night. They had been doing rehab work on the house, and drywall dust was everywhere. And one night before bed, they found footprints going up the steps and stopping in each doorway upstairs. In fact, those footprints looked just like those of high-heeled shoes. And those prints walked right into my friend's room and stopped, disappearing in the middle of the room. Being rational, he decided to go ahead and sleep there anyway. But at 3 a.m., he was awakened by a tall, slender, pale woman in a flowing gown with bright eyes, and he jumped out of bed to grab a gun from his closet, and just as he reached up for it, she grabbed his arm with her bony fingers to stop him. And he woke up, lying in his bed in a pool of sweat, with four long, thin marks on his arm, from her fingers, scratches from her nails. You see, his fingers were short and stubby. There's no way they could have left four long, thin bruises across his forearm. Several of us continued to live there, and as some of the roommates moved out, the activity diminished. I still think about those houses and those restless spirits from time to time, and wonder if the new residents are experiencing the same things that we did. One thing I know is, it all really happened. It's all true. And that is my ghost story. Our second place finisher, Mr. Jonathan Brown.
So I grew up listening to Chet Atkins. I was lucky to have a dad that was into old-time country music, and I was rumbling through my dad's. He had a bunch of cassette tapes, and so I, uh, I found a Chet Atkins tape in there, and I learned Trambone was my first song that I learned. So tonight, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dedicate this to Chet Atkins because he, he's the father of him and Merle Travis, and uh, guys like that are the forefathers of fingerstyle guitar. And I wouldn't be standing here playing if it, if it wasn't for Chet Atkins. Now we pause for station identification. Support for WFHB in the Brown County Hour is brought to you by Plum Creek Antiques, located at the intersection of 135 and 45 in downtown Bean Blossom, where visitors can buy, sell, or trade most anything. More information is available by calling 812-988-6268.
You are listening to the Brown County Hour on volunteer-powered community radio WFHB at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 in Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. We begin segment two with a ghost story from Kara Bernard. Vivian Wolf shares some information about the Brown County Cemetery Project, and Jim Eagleman tells us about turtles. I lived in the Browns' old house out on Owl Creek Road for about nine years. I moved in and had no idea that there was any history behind the place whatsoever until funny things started happening and... uh, I thought my neighbors were crazy. I thought they were shooting guns off in the middle of the night and screaming and doing all kinds of stuff. And when I confronted them about that, I found out that they actually weren't doing that at all, that there were these sounds and things going on around the house. And uh, my neighbor said, oh, you you don't know about the house, do you? And I said, "Uh, no. And that's when when she told us the story. So uh, apparently back in 1930, I believe it was, uh, there was a family living there. And one afternoon, the son came in, and uh, they had a large farm. I should say that first. A large farm, big apple orchard out there on Owl Creek Road. And um, there were several sisters that had moved away, and there was just the one son left living at home. And the story goes that the son came in one afternoon and shot both of his parents, put their bodies in the basement, and set the house on fire, and took off with all the family's money which was right around when the stock market had crashed and they had a lot of money and they had it buried out in the woods. So when the law came, they found two charred bodies in the basement and the sun was nowhere to be found and there were all of these holes that had been dug up out in the woods. So the sisters came home not believing that their brother was capable of doing something like that and uh, decided to have the bodies exhumed that had been buried, the bodies of their parents. And when they exhumed these bodies, they found out that they were actually the bodies of two men. So it was actually their brother and their father. The mother, her body was never found, but it's believed that she's buried out there in the woods back there on Owl Creek somewhere. So this unsolved murder mystery happened right in this house. And it, the, the original house burned to the ground, but the old foundation in the basement was still there intact. And that's where I had my woodworking shop. So right there in that basement on that floor where those bodies were found is where I would stand and run my power tools, not being able to hear anything but power tools, wondering what was going on behind me. Now there were lots of things that happened in that basement. There were lots of things that happened in different places of the house. I could tell stories enough to fill a book about really weird things that would happen. And then I would go around trying to make them happen again just to prove that it wasn't a ghost, that it could have just happened but there was no way. There was no earthly way that some of the things that happened to me in that house could, could be reenacted without the presence of a ghost or something. So things continued to happen, screaming and scratching on the ceilings every night and women crying and all sorts of things. I always watch these movies and I think, why don't these people leave this house? I always thought people were crazy for staying in haunted houses. And I'm telling you, you just, you just don't, it doesn't occur to you to leave. I became really inquisitive. I became really interested in the history behind the house, what was going on, and and what we found out, the woman that I was living with and I, found out that if we neglected part of the house, things would start happening there. 
So like in the front yard, if uh, there were a lot of sticks and limbs and stuff down, things would start happening in that area. So we'd go out and we'd pick up and we'd clean up and we'd say, I'm sorry, we'll do a better job next time. And things would clear up. So these, these, this presence, these uh, that seemed to be three different entities, became part of the family. That's the best way I can describe it. One night, I was in bed, sound asleep, and I woke up crying, sobbing out of control. And it didn't sound like me crying. You know how you have your own cry sound. Didn't sound like me crying. And I kept, I would, I would try to close my eyes and go back to sleep. But every time I closed my eyes, I would see the image of this charred body with a beam across his chest and a pair of overalls on in the basement. Just like a photograph just kept coming back to me. Couldn't sleep that night. Kept trying. Couldn't get that image out of my head. The very next day, a car pulls up, sits there on the road and staring at the house. And they go across the street and they're talking to my neighbors. And then they eventually leave. You know, it's Brown County. I'm nosy. I'm looking out my windows. What's going on? My neighbor comes across the street and she says, that's one of the last living family members of the Brown family. And they just came by to see the house. And we were talking and she said, you know, they never really knew who those two bodies were in the basement. Except they knew for a fact it was Mr. Brown. Because they found Mr. Brown laying in the basement with his bib overalls on and a beam across his chest. So I'm no longer a skeptic. I'm a believer. And that's, that's my story about living out on Owl Creek Road for nine years. It's my pleasure to introduce Vivian Wolf, who is a member of the Peaceful Valley Heritage Group. And as we were talking earlier, your whole involvement with cemeteries and preservation began with a, a lightning strike. Is that... Well, correct? actually, before that, the the little one room church was going to be torn down at Spernica. At Spernica, mm-hmm. and it's well over a hundred years old, and there is not an ordinance or any laws that protect these one room churches. My concern was, if the church was torn down, no one would realize that there was a community there. There was a one-room school, there was a red men's lodge, there was a store, and it was also behind the church in the field, it was the first Brown County Fair. They had horse races, they had bleachers set up, and it was a community gathering place. People would go on weekends or Sundays, and they had baseball games. And so I felt like if that church was gone, then no one would realize that that community was there. And then you fast forward to the lightning strike. Okay. So the Spernica Church was the very last building of all of that. Yes. Right. I can mm-hmm. see that, and represents quite a bit of Brown County history. So, all right, so now we have the lightning strike. And there's two huge limbs that have come down on tombstones, and I'm trying to get them moved, and that was a real awakening because nobody really wanted to get over there and work on the cemetery. Max Scroggum and his son came there, and they cut up uh, the limbs, and they were huge, and a lot of wood, and that was kind of the beginning of being interested. PVH, actually, once we started the cemetery committee, we kind of just stayed as a committee. This year, I was asked to get in touch with Val Edmonds from down in Van Buren Township. She had been working on correcting information in uh, various Internet sites on our veterans. 
And that kind of started this cemetery committee, which now has a name, and it's Brown County Cemetery Heritage Society. Do you have a Facebook page? We do. And also PVH has uh, PeacefulValleyHeritage.com and Peaceful Valley Heritage Facebook. So to represent the cemeteries, there's actually both places. Nice. Well, you were tell- telling the story of the first time you saw some Henry Cross. Right. I was driven down into Van Buren Township um, last year, and um, Steve Arnold used to work for the Democrat. He's a young mm-hmm. man that grew up here. And he asked me to ride along. He wanted to show me some uh, places. And I was on roads I've never been on down in Van Buren. And he showed me Henry Cross. And I said, Steve, why are these broken and laying in the dirt? This is art. Yeah. My goodness. And he said, yeah, he, he was killed in 1864. And I said, he's probably our first resident artist. And we just kept going to another cemetery and another one. And there were so many of them that I couldn't believe that the community had let, since we're known as an artist colony exactly. and an artist community, and there's so much attention to the fine art, uh, but now we're beginning to recognize art in other forms. In other words, the textile artists, the hookers and the weavers, and and we have a gourd artist, and we have soft artists who do all kinds of things, and and people making jewelry, and we have pottery. So there's we recognize art in so many more forms now. Right, the broad spectrum. Well, Henry Cross is known to a lot of people because he did the Stonehead down at Story, which was a road marker. Uh, there's, I th- is this an original one that's here also in the History Center, or is that a copy? One is original and one is not, and I don't know which it is. Okay. But he made three, and the reason he made them back then, you either had to pay a road tax or you had to put gravel, you know, take right. gravel out of the creek, and or you had to take whatever you had and smooth down your road, you know, where fill in the ruts and things. And he um, made an agreement to carve these heads. These road signs. Mm-hmm. And they were road signs, exactly. Well, this is how he's known now, but... In his day, he was most famous for all of the tombstones, the headstones that he carved. Right. And, the, and they're sprinkled all over the county. They are beautiful because there's little children, there's uh, cattle lowing or lambs, there's weeping willow trees, there's stumps, there it, and the hatchwork behind yeah. whatever he's... Uh, and and all of these art. things had symbology attached to them. They did. And, and if you can imagine this man going to his quarry and getting a stone, putting it in his wagon, horse-drawn, going to his shed and doing all this work with tools by a lantern, and then loading them up and taking them to a grave site. It's pretty amazing that they have been left in the condition they are. And I was so surprised that I had never heard of him, but there's so many people that did not. I wrote a grant to the Brown County Community Foundation. I had to be very creative to fit into a category, but they were very gracious, and that started our treasury to do some work for Henry Cross. But most of them had never heard of Henry Cross. And that's, I found, is surprising because I thought more people would know. Well, he... 
he may, as you say, be the very first successful artist in Brown County. And it, some people may look at it as primitive or, you know, they have other terms for it because it's not on a canvas, but it definitely is art. The interesting thing is we took the money we got from the grant and there was a donation to come through PVH. And then we have over $3,000 that we're starting to work on Henry Cross. Um, Stonehugger is the company that's going to actually be doing the work. This is Helen Wildermuth. Uh, she lives in Brown County, and she's going to be starting at Spernica on the 22nd and 23rd, and then she's going down and work on Henry the 27th, 28th, and probably the 29th. Doing actual physical restoration to these stones. Yes. Mm -hmm. Excellent. If anybody would like to stop by, uh, we welcome them to look and see what's going on. She does work all over the United States, so she's up in Fishers working now. Uh, she's done a lot of things in Bartholomew County, and she's going to restore Henry Cross's stone free. She's going to put that back together for us. Excellent. So Vivian Wolf, thank you so much for coming in and sharing a little bit of what your organization is doing. And just on a personal level, I really think this is important work, and I thank you for it. Well, thank you, and thank you for asking us. And, and uh, if you're ever interested in attending of our meetings, PVH, uh, Peaceful Valley, meets on the second Tuesday of every month at 630 in the Brown County Community Foundation room. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hello again. This is Jim Eagleman for the Brown County Hour, WFHB-FM. My question for you today is, how many box turtles have you seen this spring? How many have you moved off the road so it wouldn't get hit? I hear friends often tell me they stopped while driving a country road to help a turtle to the other side. And I always recall hearing of an unfortunate accident that happened when some well-intending person did this. There has to be a safety first thought each of us has when we see a turtle. Do not place yourself in a dangerous situation. The eastern box turtle is a terrestrial reptile that's graced the Hoosier landscape for eons of time. And sometimes now we come upon them when walking in the woods. When I do, I always consider it a bonus. Wooded areas in Brown County are part of its normal habitat, but they can live wherever a protected or natural area exists and where food and water is found. And I would have to add these requirements must exist in proper proportions. And since they are omnivorous, they eat both plant and animal materials, worms, fruits, slugs, mushrooms, salamanders, bird eggs, roots, and of course flowers. Box turtles have two shells, and by closing the bottom shell, called the plastron, up against the upper shell, the carapace, they can encase themselves for protection from predators, hence the name box turtle. The plastron is hinged across entirely about one-third of the bottom shell, allowing a tight fit. It is the carapace we first catch a glimpse of. It's sometimes rightly colored with yellow and orange designs or blotches on the many sections of the shell called scoots. The unique feature of the shell, in addition to allowing protection and camouflage, is that the backbone of this vertebrate animal is fused into the inside of the top shell. If you ever find a shell of the box turtle, the carapace, usually bleached and smooth from weathering, look for this pronounced spinal column still visible on the inside of the shell.
Well, speaking of shells, you can also tell the sex of a box turtle by close inspection of the bottom shell, the plastron. If it has a noticeable depression in the middle of the shell near the hind legs and about the size of where your thumb could fit, it is a male. Males usually have red eyes, but not always. You may also have seen notices that tell us now that the eastern box turtle status has changed and numbers, unfortunately, are declining. We see this conservation message on outdoor magazines, newspapers, and even on billboards. Like many other dwindling species, it's habitat destruction that has caused this animal to be less common. I can recall picking up box turtles as a kid and having races with them. We'd mark the shell with nail polish and our initial and keep them for a few days in a cardboard box and after the race, leave them go, not always in the same spot we found them. And this seemingly harmless practice of keeping a box turtle in the captivity, even for a short time, may have caused more harm than good. Now we know better from some of the research that's been conducted on these unique and ancient reptiles. With radio beepers attached to the carapace, researchers can now follow the routes of both sexes of box turtles. They have found that if all the requirements are present, a box turtle can live in its entire life within a square mile of healthy forest land. They possess what's called home reign loyalty, and they cannot be removed from this area. Here they will continue living life as a turtle, feeding, mating, and sunning themselves when warmth for digestion is needed. But any kind of development on that once undisturbed track now creates obstacles for normal turtle behavior. Digging holes for eggs laid by the female, for example, can be interrupted with vibrations of heavy equipment working as far away as two miles. If movement is restricted at mating time due to a road or a field or a recent parking lot, the turtle may not find a suitable mate. With less chance of mating, of course, numbers go down. If I innocently collect a turtle from the wild, children do this a lot, and I was guilty too, either a male or a female, behavior, particularly mating behavior, is affected. Of course, more roads means more fragmentation of the forest and a chance for more accidents for the turtle. We see far too many turtles crawling to cross a road, now less in hot summer than in early spring. Well-meaning turtle lovers should be conscious of all traffic safety. Never put yourself or your passengers in a dangerous situation. If you can, pull off the road, turn on your safety flashers, and move the turtle off the road in the direction it was heading. Keep a bottle of hand sanitizer in the car to wipe your hands immediately after handling, as turtles can carry salmonella. The eastern box turtle, this ancient animal as in armor, as it's been called, is a native species. It's been on the face of the earth a long, long time and belongs here in our Brown County woods. It's illegal to keep them as pets, so enjoy them on your hikes where they are and by all means, keep yourself safe if you do lend a helping hand. Thanks for listening. There's another Nature Note on the Brown County Hour, WFHB-FM. For comments, questions, please contact me, Jim Eagleman, at this station's email address, studio at browncountyhour.com. Now we pause for station identification. Support for WFHB in the Brown County Hour is brought to you by Plum Creek Antiques, located at the intersection of 135 and 45 in downtown Bean Blossom, where visitors can buy, sell, or trade most anything. More information is available by calling 812-988-6268.
You are listening to the Brown County Hour on volunteer-powered community radio WFHB at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 in Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. In our final segment, Lynn Letzinger discusses the big events at the Brown County Art Gallery. Dave Seastrom gives us his take on the mysteries of life, and Rick Clayton shares his ghost story. It is our pleasure to have Lynn Letzinger with us this evening, and she is the president of the Gallery Foundation here in Nashville, Indiana. Lynn, you want to tell us a little bit about the gallery, the history, the edition, and the event that you guys are having this month? Well, the Brown County Art Gallery is celebrating its 90th anniversary uh, in October. So we decided that we really needed to celebrate not only our 90th anniversary, but a very large 8,600 square foot addition that we added to the gallery in 2015. We've been open just not quite a year. It'll be a year in October. And now that we have all this extra space, we're able to really mount some major exhibitions, and so we've done so. And we're celebrating a gallery that was founded in 1926 by the early colony artists who came here. They had studied all over the world. They were familiar with T.C. Steele, who was really kind of a generation before them, but he was the rock star who in middle age moved to Brown County and and when it was still very, very primitive, but he was looking for a place to paint. And a lot of these artists were at the Art Institute in Chicago. They'd read articles about Brown County and they were all very influenced by the French Impressionists who would go out in the countryside and paint people in their setting and the, the landscape and scenery. So they were looking for a place like that. That was kind of different. And Brown County in 1900 was Indiana 1840. They right. were <laughs> they were very very much behind the times. So when the artists came here, they found log cabins and animals running in the streets and and a real small little town, beautiful landscape possibilities. The timber had all been cut down right. at the turn of the century, so you had these big long views. And T.C. Steele was here, so they thought, well, if he did it, we could do it. And so these artists would come, particularly in the summer. They would get away from the city and spend their summers here. And, and there was a lot of camaraderie, a lot of, tra- of trading techniques and ideas, and hiking out in the countryside. And um, so this went on for, for many years, kind of a back and forth. A few, like Gustav Bauman, um, now a, a internationally recognized as one of the greatest printmakers ever. He decided, you know what, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to see what it's like. So he rented a little space around the town square, and he printed his woodblock prints at the Brown County Democrat on, on the press that they had there. And pretty soon, Adolf Schultz and some others thought, you know, we could actually live here. Let's do it. And so other artists began moving here permanently and setting up homes and and studios. And in 1926, they thought, gosh, we should open a gallery. So they formed an association. Well, uh, you've got a Collector's Showcase 2016, the Masters, the Brown County Masters Legacy Continues. 
Uh, you wanted to talk about that event and what's what that's all about. Yes, we're, well, it's a real celebration of the 90th anniversary of the gallery. We have asked um, collectors who have supported us for many, many years because of our collection of historic art and the events that we do to loan from their private collection. So these are paintings that typically have not gone through auction. They've been purchased privately. They tend to be amazing examples um, of early Brown County art. We asked them to focus on Brown County, and our curator, Jim Ross, pulled the collection together. So there are just, there are 50 magnificent paintings by all the very best of the Brown County artists who made their homes here and were part of the association uh, at the time. We also ask our living artists our current Brown County Association members to spend the past year painting Brown County. And so we have their works hanging as part of this exhibit. And in addition, C.W. Mundy, who lives in Indianapolis, but he's known all over the world as a teacher and an artist and an exhibitor. He's very, very famous. He began his career here in Brown County. He lived here after he got out of college, and he was an illustrator for Bobby Knight in and, uh, Indiana University. He went on to illustrate the NBA, the PGA. He was very much an illustrative artist, but he, because of the influence of being here around these Impressionist landscape painters, he changed his whole career uh, and began painting in Europe and, and um, across America. And now we have his retrospect, 30 years of work from the very second oil painting he ever painted all the way up to paintings that have been created recently. So that is part of, so it's 150 magnificent paintings that you can see. And um, in addition, uh, we also have our regular exhibits. Our Gustav Bauman room is open. Our Bill Zimmerman, who's a local, very famous bird painter from Nashville. And then the Art Association main gallery, which also features Indiana Heritage Arts. So you can easily come in and spend a couple of hours looking at over 200 paintings, watching our videos, reading our catalog. And it's free and open to the public. There's no charge. Um, you'll get a beautiful 65-page catalog that has lots of articles and history. You can also learn more. Our website, that's browncountyartgallery.org. And on there is a way to sign up for our monthly electronic newsletter that we send out that promotes. And we're the historic Brown County Art Gallery on Facebook, and we Facebook every day. So if you want to see what's going on, beyond this exhibit and through the rest of the year and next year, um, that's a good place to check. Well, it just sounds absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much, Lynn, for coming in. Really appreciate it. I enjoyed being here. Thank you. It's October, and the nights have turned cool, and the leaves are beginning to change. Soon, the roads in Brown County will be filled with leaf-looking flatlanders intent on seeing some fall color. Those of us who live here will only be found on the back roads as we go from one end of the county to the other. We do our best to be good hosts to the tourists by staying out of their way and giving them free reign of Nashville. The bulk of them are only here for a few weeks out of the year, and this simple courtesy is the least we can do. October is a time for pitch-ins, and cold, frosty nights around a bonfire telling stories. It's also the time of year when the thin veil separating the living and the dead is lifted, and anything can happen. With his permission, I have a story to share from my friend Randy Fullerton. It doesn't come from Brown County, and it's not exactly a ghost story. 
but in my mind, it's a perfect example of what can happen when the veil is removed. While this is a faithful accounting of Randy's story, using many of his own words, I've taken certain liberties to add some details as I've imagined them. Randy's mom, Allie, spent most of her almost 101 years on the planet living in Lavinia, Tennessee, where her family was from. Located far from the beaten path in western part of the state, Lavinia was a community surrounded by small farms and deep forest. When Allie was a little girl in the early 1900s, her uncle, Archimedes, had a special power that he would only share every once in a while and only when he was in the right frame of mind. Allie's mother, Maggie, wouldn't let him do it while she was around because she said it was the devil's work. But when Grandma Maggie was scarce, the kids would relentlessly beg him to do his broom trick. I could imagine a group of nieces and nephews and neighborhood kids following him around saying, Come on, Uncle Archie, please, just one more time. We promise to be good. Please, please, please. It was rare that he would succumb to their pleading. But every once in a while, when the notion struck him, he would relent and say, Somebody get me the broom. The kids would all scramble to get that broom as quick as possible. There was a ritual that went along with his demonstration that had to be rigidly adhered to or he wouldn't continue. Old Archimedes would tell the kids to gather around him in a circle and remind them that it was very important that they didn't make a noise. When the kids quit fidgeting and finally grew silent, he would pull a straight-backed chair into the middle of the room and sit with his legs wide apart while holding the upside-down broom situated between his legs with both hands, he would begin to stare at the straw. Allie said he would go into a trance as he stared at the broom. After what seemed like forever to the kids, he would very slowly take his hands away from the broom and place them on his knees. To everyone's astonishment, the broom remained perfectly balanced as it stood on its rounded end. Staring intently at the broom, Archimedes would move his eyes to the left, and the broom would move in that direction. Then he would move his eyes to the right, and the same thing would happen. Allie said he would do this for several minutes as the broom swayed to the left, then to the right, and then to the left and right again, time after time. The children stood in complete silence as they witnessed the spectacle. It took every bit of concentration he had to continue moving the broom back and forth and back again. When he eventually grew tired, he would close his eyes and the broom would fall to the ground. I first read this story on Facebook. In the comments below Randy's post, a few of his cousins shared that they too had heard this story when they were growing up. I know that Randy is a man of his word and that his mother, Allie, was much loved and respected in her community, so I have no doubts as to the story's authenticity. In the fancy speak of science, this phenomena is known as psychokinetics. In other words, it's the ability to move objects using only your mind. As for me, I've experienced a tiny bit of this when the hammer perfectly strikes the nail or when the fishing lure lands exactly where I saw it in my mind's eye. I admit that this is in no way as cool as old Archimedes' broom trick, but I think these things have a certain kinship. Either way, a good ghost story told around a blazing campfire on a cold fall night is 
one of life's true pleasures, and I'm glad to share Randy's. It's also good to know there are some things that we know nothing about. This is Dave Seastrom. See you next time. With me tonight is Rick Clayton. He is a hospice chaplain and a Reiki master. And uh, Rick, we're happy to have you here. Tell me a little about your experience around ghost stories or things that go bump in the night. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, I've been hearing stories like this. I had a grandmother and grandfather on my dad's side of the family who would take us camping all the time and they would always start with Ichabod Crane and to get all the kids scared. But then they would start interjecting things that had happened to them and as life goes on, now I'm working in hospice and have worked in you know, five years and my main job is helping people die. And so I've been in some situations, plenty of situations that, that I don't have to doubt what you just said at all. Well, everybody that I talk to, if they don't have a ghost story themselves, they know somebody that has. Can I tell you a quick story? Please do. I have a, a, a family that I was seeing down south of Spencer. And if you've ever driven down there and you, and you drive along White River, a few miles out of town, there's, there are a row of stick houses. And these stick houses, unbeknownst to me or unbeknownst to the family I was working with, uh, were places where World War I veterans that had been, had been exposed to mustard gas, they, if they had been touched by that or affected by that somehow, they would put them to, in rehab in these little shacks, which is another way of keeping them out of the public eye. And this particular family that I was working with would always report these odd things going on around the house. And a couple of times there were actual visual pictures of soldiers with World War I helmets and gas masks on looking through the window. So we addressed it by just having a little ceremony outside and we put American flag in the ground and we built some rocks up and we thanked them for their service and uh, told them that they had, they can go now. They don't need to be here anymore and the legacy they're leaving behind has been noted, taken care of. Now go where you can rest and be peaceful and they never showed up again. Amazing. So just simply treating them as you might treat anybody. Sure. Kindness. Fear is an energy. Grief is an energy and they feed on that, you know. Okay. But I should also qualify and say most of my experiences, and I've had plenty, um, they, they don't tend to be uh, traumatic and evil and the way churches or Hollywood come together in arms for those things. A lot of my experiences have been people that have been needing reminded that they are dead. Uh, some, of them, some of it is just remnant energy that hangs around for a while. The, the blue lady at story comes to mind because uh, she repeats her performances, you know, some people that I've seen. So a lot of it is, you know, tender people, ancestors coming back to try to ease the grief to kind of help, you know, patch things up as they, before they go. If our context, if we take it away from being negative, how can we look at this as something positive? And what can the average person do with this? Something goes bump in the night, what do we do? There, there is this dynamic that occurs and we are projected, uh, you know, we project our own fears and that plays a part in this dynamic. Um, but in my experiences in hospice, some of the places that I've been, sometimes all, all they need is a simple acknowledgement. You know, okay. we know you're there, don't mess with us, we won't mess with you. Uh, a lot of times I've, I've run into uh, people that have, that have just recently passed and I've had to actually help them move on because they haven't left yet. And I'll get, I'll get the same kind of stories that, that you get now, you know, plates flying off walls, voices, footsteps in different places. That's their way of trying to get their, your attention. 
And that's why the old tradition of, of uh, candles and flowers in, uh, in the old, old traditional ways were there for a purpose. It was believed that the soul or the spirit of a person took a few days to disengage from the body. And that's why they would put the bodies in the home, in the living room, and the family would stay with them. Mm -hmm. And they would always keep candles and fresh flowers there because that provided energy for them to disconnect. Uh, th which is why grief can be such an issue right now because if they don't have other things, grief is a strong emotion and that's what they'll use to, to disengage. And when that door opens up, then the fear, any kind of strong emotion can give them what they need. I remember I had, I had a heart attack seven or eight years ago. And I remember the experience, because it was, you know, I was gone for about 10 minutes, um, so they tell me, and then they got me to, to the hospital and put a stent in my leg, but, uh, and, and then I returned. But, but I remember clearly and vividly, and I've talked to lots of people, even some in our church here, that have had that same kind of NDE experience. And I remember watching them work on me, and I remember it taking a few minutes to see everyone upset and, and worried about it, and I was just thinking, what is this all about? All I did was just walk through another door, and then it kind of hit me. I was watching myself being worked on. And so the idea, the old cliche, you're a, you're a spirit having a human experience, became very real to me that day. And it kind of opened the door for the work that I'm doing now, because it took the fear away. And they're people, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know? I have relationships with plenty of them. And I enjoyed the relationships, and they helped me. My great-grandma is on my left shoulder all the time I do the work that I do in hospice. And they have a vested interest in your success. So, you know, uh, all the Hollywood movies that play on the fear, they sell a lot of tickets. Well, Rick, thank you for joining us today. This has been a, a fascinating conversation. My pleasure. Thank you for uh, shedding some light on my ghost stories and maybe the ghost stories of, of our listeners. Just don't be afraid. Thanks for tuning in to episode 55 of the Brown County Hour, recorded in our studio at the History Center here in downtown Nashville, and brought to you the first Sunday of every month at 9 a.m. and the following Wednesday at 6 p.m. The Brown County Hour is brought to you by a diverse group of folks that believe the world is for everyone. You've been listening to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from deep in the woods of Brown County, Indiana. Celebrating the arts, culture, and nature that make this such a unique community. Visit us online at browncountyhour.com. The Brown County Hour is a production of WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana. Take me back, back to my home, Brown County. Oh